0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a typed outline of today's message, you can go to the show notes or the details page of your podcast platform. Today, we continue on in our God Wins series with a look at Revelation, and today we look at the end in the middle, celebrating our victory in Revelation 12. And that's what Tom's message is called today as a part of our God Wins series. First, you get your Bibles out as well as your uh, sermon notes page. Revelation 12, as I said earlier in opening the service, I believe it's one of the five most significant chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, I'll be making reference to what I think is probably the second most important verse in the Old Testament, in Genesis 3:15. Uh, that would be following Genesis 1:1 as the most important verse. <laughs> it's the foundation for everything else. But uh, I, I, you're, I hope I hope some of you are going to recognize some things this morning because some of this I have tied together from Genesis 3:15 and the rest of the Bible. Uh, Over and over through the years, and I hope some of this clicks again with you as uh, we consider this unbelievably unique and important chapter uh, of the Bible, Revelation 12. Revelation 12, celebrating our victory. A blind man walked into a barber shop one day, and as the barber began to cut his hair, the blind man decided to tell a joke. He goes, I just heard the best blonde joke ever. Well, the barber interrupted him immediately and said, listen, buddy, I understand that you're blind, so I'll cut you some slack, but you need to know something. I'm a Golden Gloves boxer, and I'm blonde. The barber to your right is a former Navy SEAL and he is also blonde. The barber to your left is a former NFL linebacker and he's blonde. To top it off, the guy at the cash register is a black belt in karate and he's blonde. Do you still wanna tell that joke? The guy thinks for a second and says, nah, I don't wanna have to explain it four times. If you're not laughing, I'll explain it afterwards. (laughs) You know, it can be dangerous if we do not see clearly those who can harm us. It's also important to understand that our real enemy, our real enemy is not other people who have a different color of hair (laughs) or a different shade of skin. It's not our real enemy. Our real enemy is the one who tries very hard to keep us from seeing what he really is. He is a clever deceiver and staggeringly dangerous. The devil wants to destroy us, even though he tries to portray otherwise. Revelation 12 pulls back the curtain so that we can get a true but scary glimpse of Satan. It pulls back the curtain so we can see things we're not able to see on a normal basis about Satan and his activity. But Revelation 12 also offers something else quite unusual and quite dramatic. I believe Revelation 12 offers an overview of the entire Bible story and of all of history all in a single chapter. It's kind of a highlight film. It was a mural in the sky that God put there to reveal something to the Apostle John. Allowing John and through him us to go backstage and see what's behind the curtain in the spiritual realm in the battle between God and Satan and the attack of Satan on us to see more clearly the evil motives and desires of our enemy, Satan. Revelation 12 is the center of the book of Revelation in more ways than one. It is a blur of historical and future events blended together. And that's really important to understand. It was written 2,000 years ago, so it's not, Revelation 12 is not all in the future. I believe that in Revelation 12, we see a hint of the Garden of Eden. In Revelation 12, we see the birth of Christ and the opposition of King Herod. In Revelation 12, we see Jesus' life, death, Resurrection and ascension, all in Revelation 12. We see Jesus' church in Revelation 12. We see Old Testament Israel in Revelation 12. We see anti-Christian forces persecuting and attacking the church in Revelation 12. And ultimately, we see the victory of God along with His faithful followers. All in one vision described In Revelation 12, in just 17 verses. And in that vision, it would seem that God has a central message of hope for you and me, no matter what's going on in our lives. I think in Revelation 12, God is asking us, Are you scared? Are you uncertain? Do you wonder why it seems that Satan often wins and we suffer? So he says to us in response, observe this vision. Celebrate this vision in Revelation 12. And that vision in Revelation 12 offers the same message of hope as does Romans 8.31 when it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's what Revelation 12 is saying. Look at the opening six verses and, and phew, these things capture so much. It says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Don't miss that image. She gave birth to a son. Don't miss this wording either. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Guess who? And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. There is a continuous struggle a continuous struggle going on. It is the mother of all struggles, the struggle between Satan and God. But first, I want us to notice a much nicer picture than that struggle between Satan and God. And that is the amazing relationship, initially, what God intends, between God and man. Now, I know when you use that term anymore, the cancel culture comes after you. I'm using man in the sense that's used in Genesis 1, that God made man in His image, male and female. It's just about humankind. Don't get bent out of shape on the man part. (laughs) God and mankind. But here's the basic Bible principle about God and mankind. God loves us and desires a relationship with us. That's ultimately the message of Christianity. That's the heart of Christianity. That's the message of the Bible. God loves us and desires a relationship with us. But after Genesis 1 and 2, where that relationship is so beautiful and so harmonious and so right between God and mankind, things change in Genesis 3. The opening verses of Genesis 3, Satan tempts Eve and Adam to do things their way instead of God's. He tempts them to doubt the word of God, what God has said. That was the foundation of, of what everything that happened. So they decide to go against what God had said. They chose Satan's word over God's word. They sinned. As a result, they went and hid from God. And Genesis 3, 8, and 9 says that God came looking for them. Isn't it amazing that God because of our sin and we in our sin comes looking for us to restore us to himself. But then in Genesis 3 starting about verse 14, God starts laying out the consequences because sin always has consequences. He starts laying out the consequences to Adam, to Eve, and to Satan who came into a serpent to tempt Eve. And what results in his conversation with Satan, God gives one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. I say it's the most important verse in the Bible after Genesis 1:1. It's Genesis 3, verse 15. God is speaking to Satan here, and notice what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, in other words, this offspring of Eve, the descendant of Eve, he will crush your head, Satan. He will destroy you. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. That is a promise of hope. It's the first gospel sermon preached in the Bible, Genesis 3.15. Please remember that verse. In that one significant verse, as I've said time after time from this stage, God promised to send a Savior. He says, Satan, you have messed things up for the human race, but I'm sending a Savior, a descendant of Eve who will hurt you, Satan, but ultimately he will dis- you will hurt him, but he will destroy you, God tells Satan. So the devil from that point on becomes absolutely determined and obsessed with stopping that promise from coming true. Everything you read in the rest of the Bible is Satan trying to stop the promise of Genesis 3.15. But God keeps saying over and over, you can't stop the promise. (laughs) You can't stop it. The remainder of the Bible tells how God kept that promise He made in Genesis 3.15 because He loved us so much. Well, that brings us back to God and Satan, that battle between them. You see, Satan fought against God's promise. After Genesis 3 the battle was on. Once God made that promise and says, I'm going to send a descendant of Eve to destroy you, Satan, the battle was on. God trying to carry out the promise to send a deliverer and Satan trying to stop it. So, let me review a little bit of Bible history for you and I want you to see it in that context. God has made a promise to send a deliverer. Satan tries to stop it. So, Satan assumed, logically, when Eve had a son that that must be the one. Her child, he must be the one that God says is going to destroy me. Well, Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. So Satan says, i got I to do something. <laughs> so he stirs trouble up in the first family. He causes one male child, Cain, to kill the other male child, Abel, and then the killer had to run away. And Satan thought, well, I took care of that. <laughs> well, they had another son named Seth who continued the family line and the promise of God. But by Genesis 6, his descendants had become quite wicked. And Satan thought, well, (laughs) I'm messing it up. I'm not sure I've got the right one yet, but I'm messing things up here. So what does God do in Genesis 6? He sends a flood to destroy the human race. And I have a feeling at that point there was a part of Satan that was laughing thinking, well, one of these people that got destroyed might be the one that was supposed to destroy me. But God found a righteous family, a man named Noah, and he saved Noah and seven others. And God's promise of Genesis 3.15 continued on. God later announced in Genesis 12, all right, my deliverer, my savior that I promised in Genesis 3.15 is going to be a descendant of Abraham. He's going to come from the family of Abraham. So what does Satan do? He goes after Abraham's family. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was unable to have a child. (laughs) Satan thought, well, (laughs) I don't take care of that. Well, when they're 90 and 100 years old, God intervenes, gives them a child named Isaac. Then Isaac grew up and got married. His wife couldn't have children initially. Eventually, God enables them to have children. They have twins who fought with each other. One of them tried to kill the other one. Guess who was stirring that up to destroy the promise of Genesis 3.15 between Jacob and Esau? Well, over time, God tells Jacob, I'm going to give you a new name. And there's a, he wrestles with God, that whole incredible story. He calls him Israel. And then Satan finds out one of Jacob's descendants is going to be this deliverer who's going to destroy Satan. So he goes after that family. They're carried off to slavery in Egypt. They're eventually freed, but spent 40 years in the desert and all in that entire family uh, line died out in the wilderness. Didn't make it to the promised land except Caleb and Joshua and those who were younger. Some point then David says, or God says, there's there's a man named David. And the deliverer of Genesis 3.15 is going to be a descendant of David. So what does Satan do? He goes after David. More than once... Satan sends a demonic spirit into Saul who then tries to kill David to put a stop to Genesis 3.15. That did not succeed. Satan knows it's supposed to be one of the royal descendants of David who would become the king, who would defeat him forever. So a woman named Athaliah took over the kingdom, Queen Athaliah, And in one incident, she tried to wipe out the entire royal line of male descendants of David. Guess who prompted that in an attempt to stop Genesis 3.15? The nation continued sinning, was carried off into exile, and while there, the entire Jewish nation was almost wiped out in the time of Esther because Satan raised up a man named Haman, To not just kill Mordecai, but to kill the entire Jewish nation, Satan thought, I'm going to get this deliverer one way or another. You see what's going on? (laughs) These were not random events. Those and more were all attempts to keep God's promise in Genesis 3.15 from coming true. But through all those years, God kept giving more prophecies about the Savior that he was still going to send no matter what Satan tried to do to stop it. You see, it's all a spiritual struggle. And that's why in the New Testament, Ephesians 6 tells us in verses 11 and 12, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that's the realms that we can't physically see, but Revelation 12 reveals to us. And here's the good news. No matter what Satan tries, no matter how much his evil spirits mess things up, God always has the last word. Yet the struggle continues. It continues in our hearts and in our lives and in our families and in our congregations because Satan, Satan is still fighting against the plan of God. But there's more good news, and that's your whole second main point on your outline that Revelation 12 promises what we sang about two or three times already this morning, a glorious victory. A glorious victory. There are three images in Revelation 12 in the verses we already read. There's a woman, there's a male child, and there's a dragon or serpent, or both. (laughs) But in the process, this chapter announces three major victories that God has over Satan. And the first is this, on your point A on your outline, the devil failed to destroy the Christ child. In other words, the devil tried and tried to keep the Christ child from coming, and he failed. And when he was born, he tried through Herod to kill him, and he failed. See, the readers in AD 90, when John wrote this, would have known the birth accounts of Jesus in Luke 2 and Matthew 2. Some of them probably had them memorized. But Revelation 12 unveils the huge underlying spiritual battle that was going on at the time of Jesus' birth. See, in Luke 2 and Matthew 2, you don't read this stuff we read in Revelation 12 because Revelation 12 rolls back the curtain and lets us see what was going on at the time of Jesus' birth. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with a sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Folks, you could make a case from Revelation 12 that says that our nativity scenes at Christmas time should also have a red dragon in the background says verse five, "She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child will snatched up to God into his throne." See, there was a battle going on that we don't see in the normal nativity scenes, but it was going on nevertheless. Now, who do each of those images represent? Well, two of them are real easy, and one's not. The dragon obviously represents Satan because verse 9 says so. It says the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. That's who the dragon is. The male child is also very obvious. Because it's very specifically quotes from a reference in Genesis. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. It's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. That child who would rule all the nations with an iron scepter is, of course, Jesus Christ. Now the woman is a bit more complex here. Yes, I think we see Mary definitely in this account, in this woman in Revelation 12 but I think we also may see Eve there too. And yes, we can see how Satan used King Herod to try to destroy God's promise, even the fleeing in verse 6, where it talks about her fleeing into the desert. Remember how Mary and Joseph took Jesus and ran away to Egypt because of King Herod tried to kill it, trying to kill them. But I think the woman represents far more than just Mary and just Eve. I think you can make a very good case biblically if you look at the whole scripture together that the woman represents the people of God. In other words, the Old Testament nation of Israel that had given the world the Messiah. That was their role to prepare the world for the Messiah. It was out of that Jewish nation that Jesus arose. And I think you can also make a case that it also could sort of represent the New Testament church, the bride of Christ, who continued his work after he left here. I think it's all those things when it talks about the woman. But the bottom line is this. The devil failed in his attempt to stop the birth of Jesus, and then he failed to stop Jesus' later acts of redemption when Jesus went to the cross for the sins of the world. Satan bruised Jesus, but he couldn't defeat him. Jesus rose again and ascended back to heaven. But then something else happened when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. In verses 7 through 9, take us again to heaven behind the curtain to see something that was happening, I believe, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And that is the devil there lost the war with Michael. Michael the archangel. This is the second victory. Here God allows John the Apostle in these verses to see things We can't normally see with human eyes. We are given a peephole into the spiritual realm. Listen to verses 7 through 9. This is intriguing. (laughs) And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. We're going to show you in a minute who those are. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. I think there was an image, and it's not very visible I know, with all the light in here, but this battle going on between the dragon uh, and, and his angels and them being thrown out of heaven. But the next image up here I want to put up here is, I think we have had a, a misunderstanding for a lot, long time Uh, that somehow Satan is the equal opposite of God. You know, God's the ultimate good, Satan's the ultimate evil, and they're like equal with each other, just one's good and one's bad. That's not true. God is Lord over everything, every being, every angel, every demon. He's Lord over everything. Satan's equal opposite is actually Michael, the archangel. And then under Satan, you have lesser bad angels, which we call demons. And under Michael, you have the lesser good angels, we call angels. And that's the battle that's going on. And it describes here, there's one in the book of Jude, of Satan fighting with Michael, the archangel. Michael, the archangel, appears in Daniel chapter 10 and 12, where he's protecting God's people. He appears in Jude, verse 9, where he's fighting with Satan over the body of Moses. Intriguing picture there. But the point is, Satan rebelled against God sometime before Genesis 3, He still had access to God in Job chapter 1 and 2, but here it seems he is cast out so that he could no longer go in and accuse accuse us before God anymore because of Jesus' cross and Jesus' blood covering our sins. So let's never take lightly... This spiritual battle going on between the angels and demons around us because it is very real. It's happening in every one of our lives every single day. But let's also remember who wins. That brings us to the third victory. The devil fails to destroy God's faithful church. See, there's a celebration that begins in chapter 12, verse 10, right after Satan's cast down. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, and these are the verses, if you read my email yesterday, I'd ask you to read out loud two or three times. I read them out loud through our buildings this morning. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. And then the verse we sang earlier. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Saying, this is something to celebrate. But there's a warning given in the last part of verse 12. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. In other words, down to the earth. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is is short. You see, Satan's only recourse, since he cannot defeat God, his only way to hurt God is to go after Christ's followers on this earth. And that's exactly what he's done. It's exactly what he does every week in our lives. He goes after us. But there's good news. Satan's, this is your number one there, Satan's accusation can't stand up. In other words, if Satan looks at me, Tom Claiborne, a sinner, (laughs) and says to God or anyone else, Tom Claiborne's a sinner. (laughs) He's, he's, He's right. See, Satan is the accuser. That's actually what his name means. He's the accuser. He accuses us of sin because we are sinners, and he's telling the truth. He tempts us to sin, and then he uses our sin against us. And as I said, the problem is he's right. We have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And as a sinner, I cannot go near God. And Satan just laughs and says, I've separated you from your creator. But he can't do that to a Christian. Why? Because, as verse 11 says, because of the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. So here we are again. How many times has this come up? In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5, says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Chapter 5, verse 9, says they sang a new song. You are worthy, singing to Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and nation and people. Chapter 7, verse 14. So these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And now we see it again in chapter 12, verse 11. That's all through the Old Testament. It's all through the book of Romans. It's all through the book of Hebrews. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Folks, if we are a Christian, Jesus' blood covers our sins. So that God cannot see them anymore. Satan can try to talk about our sin, but Jesus is our defense attorney. Fascinating two verses in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is how it describes Jesus. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. That's God's desire. But if anybody does sin, and we do, we have an advocate. That's another word for attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. So as I stand before God as a sinner, and Jesus, my defense attorney, stands there and says, "Uh, Father, I've covered his sins. I've covered his sins with my blood. And that's why Romans 8.31 is true. If God is for us, (laughs) who can be against us? Who can be against us? But Satan had a second failure. God's church continues to spread, even though Satan has tried over and over, and Revelation 12 describes it, to stop that from happening. Notice in verse 6 again, it says, The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. She had to flee from Satan because of persecution. Then jump down to the last of verse 12 and go on down to verse 15. It says, But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torment, with the torrent. So here we are back to the battle on earth again. Satan using his minions to go after human beings, followers of Christ, See, Satan went after the people of God again, but the book of Acts tells us they simply spread across the Roman Empire and they took the gospel with them. Did you realize that there was only one time in the history of the world that God's church could have been stamped out all at once in one place? It was right at the day of Pentecost and following when the entire church of God was all in one place. (laughs) or Satan could have wiped them out. Well, soon after the day of Pentecost, people went back to their lands. But even after that, most of the Christians still were in around Jerusalem. So early in the the book of Acts, Christians tended to stay there, and they thought, this is cool, we don't need to go everywhere else. But guess how God chose to spread his people across the world? Acts 8 tells us in verses 1 through 4 says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. I'm getting ready to tell you one of the great blessings of persecution. <laughs> on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And here's an important phrase, verse 4. says, those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So how did God get the message to leave Jerusalem and start going all over the empire? He used persecution to spread them across the empire, and every one of them took the message with them. It backfired on Satan. God used the persecution of his people by Satan to spread his message. There are numerous examples of this happening in history. In Ethiopia in 1927, a group of missionaries went into a very pagan area. They left 10 years later Uh, all the missionaries, because of persecution that was coming, there were only 48 Ethiopian believers. When they came back six years later in 1943, after a time of persecution, they found not 48 believers, but around 18,000. Because the people simply began to spread the message. The persecution actually stirred them up, and it spread the message. And it's no wonder that the historian Tertullian said years ago that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When martyrs shed their blood for Jesus, just like chapter 12, verse 11 is talking about, it spreads the message, and God's church grows. Same thing happened in China. In 1948, when the communists took over under Mao Zedong, missionaries had to leave, and they left behind some small, struggling churches. They returned years later, wondering what they would find in China, and they found more than one million Jesus followers. And estimates are now that even though persecution continues, and China's a messy, evil, communist country persecuting Christians right now, but some estimates say that there are as many as 75 million followers of Jesus in China. You see, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's what verse 11 is talking about. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You see, the blood of Jesus, His sacrifice, has inspired His followers to be faithful, no matter what. And then that level of commitment in Jesus' followers has called many other people to follow Him as well because they've seen how much Christians are willing to suffer and still follow Him. God's church continues to spread. Satan cannot stop the promise of God. But thirdly, another victory. Satan can kill the body but not the soul. Folks, this is one of the main lessons of the book of Revelation. Satan unleashes his flood of evil against God's people. Look again at verses 15 and then we're going on to verse 16. It says, Then then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. In other words, Satan unleashed and he still unleashes a flood of sin and disease and persecution and demons and harassment and deception and false teaching and many antichrists. And when he still cannot destroy the church as a whole, he sets out to destroy individual followers of Jesus. And that's what verse 17 is talking about. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. That would be us. (laughs) Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Do you remember what Revelation 2.10 said a few weeks ago? It says if we are faithful unto death, we will receive the crown of life no matter what Satan does. All someone can do is kill our body. Now, we get pretty attached to this life, so we don't like that, but all somebody can do is kill our body, but they cannot kill our soul. And that brings us to the fourth victory, that Satan's time is limited. Did you catch that last part of verse 12? It says, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. And then it says this, he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. See, the devil knows that he is limited in what he can do and how long he can do it. And that's why he so frantically tries to mess with our lives and mess with our families and mess with our churches and all that. One of my favorite verses in the gospel accounts is in Luke chapter 22. And it's where Jesus is arrested in the garden Garden of Gethsemane. And he makes a comment to those who have come to him with torches and clubs and all the stuff to arrest him. And he, he throws this out. I love this. And this is actually to Satan but also to those arresting him. He goes, this is your hour <laughs> when darkness reigns. He goes, okay, have your, have your hour, have your fun for an hour. <laughs> Satan has his hour, but God has his eternity. Satan has his hour, but God's people have their eternity. Satan knows his time is short no wonder Romans 16 verse 20 says to Christians, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is also a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Not only would Satan crush the head of, uh, of, of Satan, or would Jesus crush the head of Satan on the cross and the resurrection, it means we get to stomp on his head too. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Love a comment that was made during the dark days of Julian, the apostate Roman emperor in the 360s AD, when a scoffer asked a Christian one day sarcastically about Jesus, you know, the carpenter, and Jesus had, had left this earth physically. And this skeptic scoffs at a Christian and says, What's your carpenter doing now? And the Christian wisely responded, making a a coffin for your emperor. In other words, Jesus wins. See, that early Christian understood Revelation 12 and God's promise. In Revelation 12, God is asking us, hey, are you scared? Are you uncertain? Does it seem like Satan and evil always win? God says, look at the vision in Revelation 12. So my friends, as we face the trials and uncertainties in life, let's remember Revelation 12. As we read about the horrible things going on in our world and in our country right now, let's remember Revelation 12. When we hear people mock the authority and the relevance of the Bible, let's remember Revelation 12. When we see sin being glorified in song and on stage and in life, let's remember Revelation 12. When the Bible and Christian values are forcibly removed from American public life, let's remember Revelation 12. And let's never forget that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. See, the reason Satan tried so hard to prevent Jesus' birth and later his sacrificial death was because he knew that's the only way we could be saved from our sin. So he had to stop Jesus' birth from happening. See, each of us has sinned. Each of us will someday stand before God to answer for our sin, each of us. And yet there will be no fear if you or I are able to say, Yes, I sinned, but I overcame by the blood of Jesus. Yes, I am a sinner but I trusted Jesus Christ to save me. I obeyed God's commands, verse 17. I held to His teaching, verse 17. I was baptized into Christ, dying to my life, and rising to live for Him. I've stuck with Him all the way. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm a forgiven sinner. And that makes all the difference. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So we prepare for our decision time this morning. I want you to look at the statement at the bottom of the page and fill this in. You'll see it on the screen. There will be no fear if we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. So we sing this song this morning. Give me Jesus. Let's remember what. Christian paying for us the very first Sunday in this series. Jesus is the Lion of Judah, and he's also the Lamb of God who shed his blood for our sins. And it's through the blood of the Lamb we can be forgiven. So I ask you the most simple, basic, important question. Are you personally covered by the blood of Jesus? Are you covered by the blood of Jesus? See, how you answer that question makes all the difference in the world. Makes all the difference in how your attitude should be as you go out and approach life this week. Hopefully, most of us can say, I am a failed sinner. But thank God for the blood of the Lamb that covers my sin because I accepted Him as Lord and Savior of my life. And I'm going to allow Him to stand before God on my behalf someday, covering me with His blood. This song is all about the priority of Jesus, making Him above and beyond everything else. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Make make it about Jesus. Help me to live for Him. Help me to walk with Him. When I come to die, give me Jesus. Because He's our only hope. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's Word and follow His Son, Jesus Christ.